Good job, Greg. You succeeded. I did it. Success. You you picked a comic for this week, right? I yes. You you did. No, you got back to me. What? And you got back to me before. Oh, wait, I said I was picking a comic for this week. Yeah, no. Well, you said you were picking a comic. We were going back and forth and I I had made some suggestions and uh, and I rejected all of them. You rejected them all. But you you came up with something. Remind us of some of your suggestions. I wanted to go down the I wanted to go down the road with US one. Yeah, somebody else that nope. Somebody else is already doing that as a podcast. Next. Um, I wanted to uh, I wanted to uh, take some kicks with the karate kid. Uh, no, rejected. Next. Uh, I wanted to see what we could chase with Danny Chase. We already did that. I, I wanted to see what else we could chase with Danny Chase. And I said no, rejected. Uh, um, so I I wanted to do a, a, a book that has become a movie and y- you can't find the book that you bought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no, that's actually true. Well, we will do that later. I've got I've got I know where they're at. I've got three boxes full of books and I'm also missing another book. I'm not really missing them. I know exactly where they are. I just haven't opened the boxes to sort it out. So I can't pull that graphic novel at yeah. the moment. And it's not something I can get electronically. So, yeah, and it's totally fine. And it's it, it's it will we'll get there when we get there. I'm. I'm actually quite pleasantly pleased with the choice that you you threw my direction when I when I got a um, a look at it. I yeah, it's pretty fantastic. I was shocked. I was like, "What? What is this delightful thing that you found? This is everything well, I love." <laughs> well, and I actually so all I did is last yeah. night I we I hadn't picked anything for us to read, and so I opened the Who's Who omnibus from DC comics. And this is the page I landed on was Nathaniel ah. dusk. And I remembered ads for the Nathaniel dusk. I guess it's the second series, not this one. So we're reviewing the first series, uh-huh. uh, which came out in February of 84. It, it's a newsstand book. Surprisingly, I think, yeah. no, it's gotta be a direct sale. I take that back because it does not have the comics code authority on it. Oh, it does not. But it looks like a newsstand. So maybe I'll have to investigate that a little bit more as I vacillate back and forth. Because it says copyright 83 DC Comics, cover date February 84. So that means it would have come out in what? uh, Feb, Jane, December? Uh, I think of 83. So technically. So anyway, we're right on the border of the years there. Uh, And we're in a a, a period where we've talked about this on the podcast before, but a really interesting time for DC Comics when and and Marvel for that matter. So I checked out uh, our favorite website, uh, Comicron. Oh, Comicron. And uh, I'd mentioned the top selling books for uh, DC in 82, 83, 84 were uh, New Teen Titans and Legion of Superheroes, right? And we've Mm -hmm. talked about that in the past. Um, In 1984, and this is what I have data for here. It's all I can see on Comicron. It's C-O-M-I-C-H-R-O-N. And I would recommend using their site.com and supporting them on Patreon because they fight the good fight and try to keep this historical information about sales data alive. And if you're nerdy like that, um, it's a great size to support. I did not know this. What was the number one selling book in every month in 1984? Do you want to take a guess? Oh, 1984. Um, best selling book. It was a maxi series by one of the two major publishers. Superman. A maxi series, oh. like limited series. Limited series. Uh, um, 19, okay. 1984. Uh, US1. No, that was an ongoing series. I'm just, I'm just joking. I'm just, I don't know. Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 were the number one books from January 1984 to December 1984 for sales. Oh, wow. And they did have a cool sales sheet, though it did not have Nathaniel Dusk on it, but I did, it was for October. And the top books, and this is just, I'm just kind of trying to put Nathaniel Dusk in place in time here as we get to the end too, and we'll kind of explore this. Thoughts uh, about how this would actually get published by DC Comics. Uh, mm-hmm. But you have uh, Secret Wars was the top book, and you have, you, you might guess, X-Men, Kitty and Pride and Wolverine. This is for October. 
uh, New Mutants, Alpha Flight, and then New Teen Titans is at number six, and Tales of the New Teen Titans are at seven. So those are the top two selling DC books. Um, okay. That is after we've talked about that when DC took Legion and Teen Titans, their top selling books, and made them direct sale only. Uh, so you could only buy them through comic shops. Uh, then we get into a few more Marvel books, quite a few actually. Marvel Team Up, Thor, Amazing Spider-Man, uh, Beauty and the Beast, number two. I assume that's off the movie. No, that can't be off the movie. That's got to no, be off I think the TV it's... show. Yeah. No, it wasn't off the TV show at that point because the TV show wasn't until 88. Okay, so it's just... Or 80, okay. 86, 87. Well, that's the first one I don't know on the list. Uh, Fantastic Four, Iceman, limited series, Peter Parker, G.I. Joe, Avengers, Power Pack, Marvel Age... And then the next uh, DC book is at 19, which was Legion of Superheroes. Uh, so you're only have two DC books in the top 20. Mm-hmm. And they're both teenage superhero books. Cool. Yeah. It, so, it, it makes sense. Cause I mean, like, I mean, they're, they're, <clears throat> they're the kind of, they're the kind of books that parents generally would grab if they're grabbing a book for kids. They see kids yeah. on the cover. I know that's how I got a lot of power pack books. <laughs> so. Well, and then, you know, they look like, they all look like adults at that point, too. And, and Tales of Legion is at 32. Um, and Blue Devil was the only other DC book in the top 30 at number 30. Blue Devil number mm. nine, believe it or not, uh, on this list, which is pretty crazy when you think about how dominant uh, Marvel was at that point. Yeah. And especially in the top 30. And you're looking at seeing like things like Batman and Superman way down the list. Um, I'm actually trying to find Superman, so I'll, I'll keep looking here. Maybe people just wanted they they were looking for something different. Yeah. Well, they were definitely looking for something different, but you know, also the the creative teams on at least for DC, the the Marvel Wolfman George Perez team on New Teen Titans you know, top flight creative yeah. team. And by number six it, uh, of the direct series, it was starting to go downhill a little bit, but not really. The Tales book was still great. And the Tales book was leading up to the, uh, uh, with uh, Deathstroke and uh, Terra and that whole deal. So that very controversial storyline. So at least in these days, because it's not cool to have a 14 year old hang out with the supervillain for some yeah. reason. Yeah. So you were leading up into that, but, you know, very popular uh, high bookseller storylines. And of course, Secret Wars and X-Men and the tie ins there. And you had all that running. But you are missing a few you know, things here, too. Iron Man was surprisingly high to me at 22, but Avengers is it sitting at 16. So definitely far beyond the X books at this point. So uh, which <clears throat> we're still sitting up there. And if you think about, you know, the X books, who was working on those before? True. So correct me if I'm wrong, though, Iron Man time frame wise story storyline. And I'm not sure if you know or not off the top of your head. But was this um, should be alcoholic. around the time of Demon in a Bottle? Well, was it alcoholic Tony Stark? Yeah, it should yeah, it be demons. around that time. And I know uh, I know there was a lot of a lot of folks that um, uh, no, that was 80. Like, uh, hmm, I'm looking. Go I was going to say, I, like, I know. You, sorry. I know my dad was like he was reading a lot of this stuff, that stuff, um, because it, it fit, it was very pragmatic, right. You know, so it, and it, it kind of fit like, Oh, okay. Here's a guy that's seen some stuff. He's living. Yeah. He's, that, he's that going through actually some... 79. Okay. So yeah. And, and it made sense for, uh, you know, folks like, uh, in, in that era, uh, like, you know, my dad and my uncle's era that, that were, ex-military that were coming out of stuff and they're re- they're they're connecting back with something they read as when they were younger and they're like oh here's here's this guy that i i i can relate to you know dealing with some stuff and trying to make his way through life or whatever well and it also makes sense why the marvel comics dealing with themes like that were selling uh, much better than the dc comics yeah and what I can also say about the Teen Titans book and the the Legion <clears throat> of Superheroes book is what they were able to do with both of those books is they were we've talked about this before is they were able to age the teenagers into young adults. Right. And then have those young adults deal with young adult themes like drinking, like yeah. sex, yeah. Yeah. like relationships. All and the things so, that young adults do. 
would and then would want to read about right as so very they marvelize the books so to speak uh but i would also you know make the argument that that uh, new teen titans definitely was marvelized because it came from george perez and marv wolfman but legion had kind of grown into that and i'm sure we'll save that podcast for another day but Paul Levitz was writing that book with Keith Giffen and Keith Giffen had had the, the different themes and had worked for Marvel for a cup of coffee. Right. But it was yeah. is mostly known as a DC creator, but he cut his teeth mostly with Omega men. Right. So, you know, big outer space, soap opera, deep space, you know, kind of Jim Starlin esque themes there moving into Legion as the artist and co plotter. Uh, with with Paul Levitz as that series became popular. So that they were in issue, at least in October. And when this came out, they would have been just the start of it. So I think both the Teen Titans books and the Legion books went in direct in March of 84, I think. So maybe one month after this came out. Okay. So it makes sense that you're seeing, I guess, those themes come to the direct uh, market comic book shop would be my point. Uh, interesting. And we run into a book that is not a superhero book. Yeah, no, it is not a superhero book. It's like, I I don't know when, when I got this, when I, I I think when you sent this over last night, it was pretty, it was pretty late at night. And I had probably like, like put my phone off to the side and gone to bed. And like I was telling you pre-podcast, I I had to um, move my sleeping arrangements because I was snoring too loud. The snores or was awake. So I was, uh, yeah, so I, I was moving around, took a look at the phone and I think I, I was, I was just delighted with what I was seeing. So I was, I, I read a little bit before I went back to sleep. <laughs> and, and the art is, is fantastic. And oh my gosh, you look at it. Well, it's Gene Colon. So one, yeah. the art should be fantastic, but it's Gene Colon in a, in a way that I had not really associated with him at all this is not uh, the gene colon escort i was expecting at all yeah no 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 but at the same point i mean like you've seen like if you take a look at the pedigree of, of gene and the things that gene has worked on you're like you can kind of piece it all together like oh okay wow or or just be like blown away like this is that Th- this is the same person i don't know there was there was moments where i when i uh, went back and was like, what is that? Do you hear that? And before noise? you jump too far ahead, <laughs> tell the yeah. folks why you love Gene Colon. Uh, why do I love Gene Colon? Did he well, draw I a book have, you're particularly I, fond of or something? I have um, a a giant run of Gene Colon uh, books in my collection. The Howard the Duck series uh, that was gifted to me by my, my dad and my uncles when I was a young boy. And uh, I... Um, they are they're they're goofy books and i love them so but they're beautiful to look at <laughs> yeah gene drew a lot and he drew a lot of daredevil uh oh, yeah. for marvel a, a bunch of daredevil he drew uh some limited avengers runs among some of the famous stuff uh for dc he had he drew this but he drew a bunch of of one-offs for dc too and had a pretty decent run on detective comics. So this is a very accomplished artist and I'm massively understating his resume at this point. But what I can say is when you look at Gene Colan's overall resume, you're going to see a lot of short runs on things where he would fill in, but you'll also see a lot of different art styles. It's not just superhero books. He drew like romance books Mm -hmm. and all sorts of different things. And then, We've got uh, Don McGregor as the author, who I was not really familiar with. And I was really excited to see Don McGregor's uh, text piece at the end of the first two issues. And and we'll get into a little bit of that as we go through the next couple podcasts. But McGregor worked for uh, Warren Publishing early on, doing a lot of scripting for Creepy and Eerie and Gorilla. So that's where McGregor cut his teeth. So McGregor has done some superhero stuff too, but I would say he's much less tied to say the superhero genre exclusively uh, than Gene was, but they had worked together on a couple of pieces in the past. And so for, I believe he said for eclipse, if I remember at the back of the book, I may be Mm -hmm. messing up the dates. So yeah, it was for eclipse. So, and 
I guess McGregor had a book at the time called Saber, which some folks have heard had a 14-issue run for Eclipse Comics. So if you're looking for these folks back in history, I, I like... I. It's been a while since we've done an old book, and I've got to talk about comics history. This is fun. Yeah, no, this. I mean, this like seeing all the different stuff that the two of them have worked on and seeing all the like going back and like, you know, checking out all that stuff and go, Oh wow. I read that. Oh wow. I read that, you know, um, or I have, I have one of these in my collection. It's like, Oh wow. You know, I'm, I'm pretty excited because they, they both, they both worked on a lot of stuff that kind of, um, I guess oddly shaped, the kind of writing that I do and the kind of things that I like uh, as a reader too, you know, I mean, like they both worked on creepy and that's, that's definitely something. And, you know, how are the duck dude? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you know, we get into uh, the rest of this too. And at the time, time and space as well, we're getting into the period where a lot of indie books are, are being critically, if, if they're not sales, if they're not winning in sales, they're critically acclaimed. So you were getting into the era of John, John Sable 21 uh, was out in October. So this is what I I'm selling that October list. So I'm not exactly lined up on the month, but we had John Sable out. We also had American flag uh, by Howard Chaikin, John Sable by Mike Grell. So, and then of course you may have heard of, of the teenage mutant Ninja turtles, the who, who were definitely not in the top 100 of sales, but I believe came out in 1984. Yeah. And, uh, oh, and, and Hey, our David, the intern will be happy. Zot number eight made the top 100 comics in, uh, 1984 in, uh, October, 1984. But so you are seeing some books from eclipse, uh, and some other publishers like jumping in. I first, right. Was it first that was American flag and John Sable? maybe one of our dead <clears throat> publishers but anyway it's uh you're getting some fantastic stuff out there and so it was interesting and i would guess though i'm not reading uh dick Giardino's mind or janet khan's minds as the head but i'm thinking with a four-part series like this they're probably willing to experiment with a little bit of this stuff seeing as how marvel is just literally kicking their ass yeah <laughs> and the indie books are creeping in and they don't want to be caught in the middle, only selling right. superhero books. Uh, and you also have too. I would say number 38 in October. And so that's number by number 15 uh, was Vigilante was also uh, by DC Comics. And if you're watching and I, I don't want to spoil it for you because I know you haven't watched it. But if you're watching Peacemaker, uh, Vigilante is one of those characters they pulled into Peacemaker that was a character out of time. So you have Uh Peacemaker that was a character developed in the Silver Age and is definitely a character out of time that they can now make fun of, right, on a series. And then Vigilante was a Bronze Age character, definitely out of time, right, from 1984, came out of a new Teen Titans. And the character was very different in the comic books than it is in the series. And so they were experimenting a little bit with some superhero books that were edgier and darker. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to spoil a... I don't want to spoil a comic, you know, that's what, 40 years old or anything. But uh, <laughs> at the end of the Vigilante series, he, he commits suicide. <gasps> and so, yeah, very different, very different era, right? You're not looking at, yeah. <laughs> this is, it's not your kid's book. Uh, but those were direct right. sale books and they could do a lot more with these direct sale things. So I think it's time for DC to probably start experimenting. And... One of the neat pieces I mentioned before we even start reviewing this book, this is a private detective book set in 1934. And at the end of the piece, there's a great text piece by Don McGregor talking about how he pitched the book and how his friend Gene Colan got him into Dick Giordano's office to pitch the book. And he was so surprised that DC would publish a book that wasn't superheroes. He kept uh, thinking they were going to make him put like crypto in the book. <laughs> you know, he's joking about it and he's like there's going to be a flying dog with a cape or they're not going to publish it and this was sort of the mindset you know even the it was a great insight of the t- snapshot of the time I love it because it's one right. of the snapshots of the time where you have a writer who didn't even think about pitching their stuff to DC because DC was the superhero book company yeah that's what they published and so why would you go there uh, to do something innovative and cool and so then, you know, but, you know, six years later, 
seven years, six, seven years later, you have vertigo and the imprints and Sandman and, and all of that happening. Mm-hmm. And so a massive change should happen. And of course, a few things along the way made that happen, right? Things like Nathaniel Dusk, Doom Patrol, etc. But you've got some really cool stuff and experimentation coming out here. And that's what this was. And you get into the cover here, and this cover is fantastic. Ah, man, this cover blows my mind. I love the Art Deco titling of his name, Private Nathaniel Dusk, Private Investigator. It just looks, it just pops right off. Yeah, so the logo is super cool. And I know uh, the letterers often came up with the logos. Is that correct? I want to say, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, and I don't I, know. I think the letter here is, it was John Costanza. I know Todd Klein came up with a lot of, of logos. I I'm curious as to who came up with this one. I just don't know. Um, I don't know that. The, I think that'll be a deep dive research that I probably don't have time for in the, in, you know, <laughs> from last night to today, but I can, <laughs> I can maybe try to figure that out later. As you should. No, and then just like the way that the there's so much going on on that that cover, all the imagery and stuff. It just it it just gives a feel of like, oh man, what is going to happen in this book? You know. And while Gene did get help on the second cover for issue two, I think Gene did all of the art. That's who's credited. He did the pencils and the inks for this. Oh wow! And that's, that's great because, like, I mean, it just I don't know. I, I reading, you know reading his his uh his information and stuff like that it just it it just goes to show like you know here's somebody that just cut their teeth from an early age on art and it just keeps going (laughs) and has such a capacity to do different things right the cover to the the man in the background with the knife and the 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 reflection or the not the the lighting off the The lighting yeah makes it stand out you got the lights in the cars the penciling mm-hmm. and the way he inks himself is is really fantastic. And then the way the colors wash out mm-hmm. sets you in that period, right? It looks like oh. a, a private, fun private detective. Yeah, piece. no, it and it just has that feel like this book for a book done in 84, 83, 84. It, it definitely feels like you're pick, like you're getting a book out of a bin from the 40s, you know, right? Or or now or yeah. And we'll get into some of the the techniques oh, they use that yeah. that help modernize comics that are that are present in this book as we go through it. All right. And then you flip the page and you don't get anything out of now. You have in, an advertisement for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons video game on the Intellivision. Whoa! Mattel Electronics, nineteen eighty three. Look at Man. those scary ghosts coming out of there. I I will tell you though that was that was the the business right there i mean <laughs> like you're playing dungeons and dragons on on the tv yeah it looks you really great all if your you friends. look down at the fantastic graphics okay so we'll flip to the next page for some Though of us Dan, send, it was the only way we could play because we didn't have any friends i did send <laughs> the proprietor of the retro emporium some of the advertisements from these couple of issues and oh yeah i got no response so no, uh, not i'm impressed. sure they'll get used for post that's what i was thinking so well anyway we start out in new york city on january 31st 1934 ah and this is dedicated to robert culp uh who i had to look up was the co-star of i spy with somebody we don't talk about yep but and you probably knew that already but i i did not yeah but so we get a lot of cool stuff on this page. It's like, <laughs> well, you, you find out a lot of things right away, right? We get yeah. him. We find out he's a private investigator immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is some of the things we were complaining about in other books we've read, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm looking at a page, right? I yep. know this guy has some unique stuff in his office. I know yep. he carries a gun. Yep. I know he's a private investigator because it says so on his door. Yeah. And I know the book's dedicated to Robert Culp. And, it, you know, if I'm reading an adult book in 1983, 84, I probably know what I Spy is. So, mm-hmm. OK, cool. And we get a caption at the bottom, captioned himself, and he's narrating himself, not in flat bubbles, but squares. Yep, in squares. Which is a modern, which is a postmodern technique for comics. So I love to see this here. I thought that was pretty cool. And mm-hmm. it's something we talked, I've talked about with students when, how effective that was in the book Identity Crisis, 
when each of the heroes had their own color. And we talked about that with uh-huh. the crit books we were just reviewing oh, over the yeah. last few weeks. Oh yeah. And it's, and this is cool that it's, I'm seeing it, you know, in 84. So mm-hmm. I'm interested to keep dating this back to see where it goes to. And we get, we get a simple uh, phrase in the start. Uh, you don't become a private detective to get rich at best. If you're lucky, you can survive. I'm not bad at surviving. So we get kind of the 1930s sort of disposition here sets us in the time. Mm-hmm. And 1934 was in the middle of what, Greg? Uh, history test, sir. History test. Uh, well, um, the great, the, the great depression. <laughs> Let you know what I'm going for there. Well, I, I was going to say it was the end. It was the the end of prohibition, the beginning of the depression. The <laughs> the yeah. It, it was. It's it's kind of. I would say this book is very fitting for the current timeline we're in right now, which is unique and interesting because a lot of the things that uh, they discuss as we move through the book um, and that we're, we're seeing in our own current lives, (laughs) it's not, not too far off. So (laughs) yeah, not too far off. So we go to the next page. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to go panel by panel here, but we'll give you a summary. We've been talking a long yeah. time already, but I want to get you a good feel for this book. Um, you I said, um, because really I got fast? stuck. If I could, so if I what? sorry, I said, did you want to run through the team really fast? Oh, yeah, I thought I did. Sorry, McGregor. I, you might and have. Colin, Con- uh-huh. uh, John Costanza letterer, uh, Tom Zuko on colorist is the colorist and Alan Gold was the editor. Yeah, I did definitely want to do that. Man, I'm all over the place here. I'm like, oh, what'd you say? Huh? That's, huh? <laughs> that's okay. Well, we I was digging into oh. that second page, and that's where I was lost yeah. a little bit. And we've got the title of the book, Lovers Die at Dusk. And we get a really cool page. So I was going to ask you a question. And that's why I was so oh, yeah. distracted. Yeah. If we go down to the bottom of page two, first off, we've got two mean looking and pre- people looking, and they basically say they have this guy in their sights. So yeah. a little foreshadowing for the future of the story. One of them is named Cadaver, which I assume if you're named Cadaver, you're up to no good. Oh, yeah. You're, you're, Can you talk to me about the technique that Colin is using on the faces down in the bottom panel of, of page two? That's what I wanted to ask you about. Is that cross hatching? Like, what is that? What, the shadow that they're yeah. doing? How he's um, creating those facial shadows, the facial shadows. I mean, I'm not an artist, but uh, I would uh, I, I'm not sure if it's cross hatching or if it's just light pencils to to give it that that texture, um, because like a like cross hatching would be you would have multiple lines, but it's all going in the same direction. OK, but yeah, it, we'll it definitely. Have... Yeah, have to have a, an artist chime in for yeah, us. If you're but... an artist and you listen to this chime in and tell us where we've screwed up here. I think the cool part of this, though, is people in this book look real. They don't look oh, fake yeah. in the sense that they they look their age. Mm-hmm. Not everybody looks the same age. They look very different. Yeah, and everybody looks very unique. I like, too, you could tell that McGregor spent a lot of time researching the 1930s. And, and he notes that in his text piece at the back of the book, too, that he had researched the 30s for a, a project he'd worked on earlier. Mm-hmm. And then researched again before he wrote this book but we get uh, a barber shop and then we get a newsstand which is pretty classic for comics newsstands always showing up in comics but he also references the polio epidemic at the time and talking yeah. to the the gentleman at the newsstand and his son and i thought that was a nice touch to hit some of these points and illustrate where we're at in history at that time and really set up the scene yeah totally i mean like when when that hit when that when he said that, that kind of hit like close to home. I had a, a great uncle who grew up in that era, in that time frame, uh, and he was stricken by polio. So all you know, growing up, uh, I had a you know this great uncle that used he he wanted to he he wanted to walk, so he walked with these two crutch type cane things that he you know that's how he learned how to walk when he was a kid so he he had those pretty much all his life and uh and you know he was it was it was like that just that whole scene right there just like oh man yeah no that totally that's totally the time (laughs) 
And he also references a, we get to the newspaper and we get on page four, a splash page of a taxi driver's threatened strike. And apparently that was something that was happening in New York at that exact time period too. Mm -hmm. He references. So cool Easter eggs for folks uh, that are reading the book. Yeah. And I thought this was hilarious, by the way. I don't know if this was on purpose. What's that? She was waiting for me. Mrs. Grant Morrison a transplanted Midwestern woman. (laughs) (laughs) Now, to my knowledge, Graham Morrison really hadn't, uh, I guess had broke in, but wasn't the, the king of comics yet. So that's, that, that's kind of fun. Yeah. Maybe it was just a quick head nod to the new kid. You know, maybe he's like, maybe (laughs) or well, and I think, I think, well, he'd worked on so much stuff in the past. McGregor may have known Grant, so that's yeah. possible. Yeah, that was cute. I didn't see it referenced in the the liner notes at all in the back, so uh-huh. I, I don't know. But I thought that was fun. But basically, yeah. we get what star- – one of the great things about this book is we get what starts out as a very stereotypical uh, de- private detective book, and it's kind of yeah. going through that. You have this woman who is dressed up in – uh, 30s dress, very stereotypical, yeah. and she's trying to get information on her husband. Then we go up and he hands it to her immediately. Then we go a couple of pages of a totally awesome Parker Brothers gaming. Uh, I with a keyboard honestly want to go find out who Dave, I want to look up Dave Jackson, expert gamesman, and find out who this person is because he looks totally awesome. That's for well, sure. That's uh, that's fine. They, they've, I guess, made Parker Brothers games for Pole Position, Qbert, and Popeye. So uh, I think Anne needs to get on finding those for us so we can. I know play we them. have a a classic Pac Man game and a Zaxxon and uh, a couple other board games. Ones. I don't. Yeah, board games. I don't have. Okay. We don't have the the Qbert, Popeye, or the Pole Position. I'm pretty sure they're pretty. <laughs> they'd be prized possessions if we did. And then to show you where DC's advertising was at this time, we get a advertisement for a store in New Jersey selling fishing poles. Yeah. Okay. And so now we get to the next page and we have this massive overreaction. And then this other woman comes in and she's wearing a not as stylized dress. Uh, just a pedestrian dress compared to the other one. Would you say? Yeah. And identified yeah. as Joyce uh, Julino. And Joyce tries to console the other woman and she basically tells her to F off. Yeah. And but it's very clear. Dusk starts describing in the text in the narration. He says uh, she didn't look as if she had just spent the day on her feet selling cheap perfumes at the five and dime uh, to overweight ladies who have money for such uh, debatable luxuries. We met two months ago when she was a pitch hitter behind the lunch counter. So he met somebody who's working for a living and yeah. working hard uh, during this time. And, and he's the woman that, with yeah, her. yeah. And the woman that, that he's quote unquote helping out with her, her, uh, her family situation <laughs> like is, uh, is it looks like she's well off, right? You know, she's got and that literally fur. throwing money at him. Yeah. Yeah. Literally here, take your money. Tell all my friends. And she slams the door and leaves um, as she's a Karen, but in the 1930s. And then we get a scene where uh, Joyce and Nathaniel or Nate are just hanging out in the office and conversing. And there's files and things everywhere. And he kind of gives a little bit of his backstory. He tells her that he tried to be in the police force, but uh, it's where it was hard to get fired, but he just saw too many people abused by the New York city police who hadn't broken the law and he quit and he just doesn't like that. So he became a private detective, even though it was not politically advantageous or financially advantageous to do. So they make that very clear. He made this transition right in the middle of the great depression where he could not get another job. Yeah. He had to make his own way. And by page seven, I just want to stress how much I like this writing. There is a lot of text on these pages, which is one of the reasons I'm not trying to read the pages to you. Yeah, you definitely should get this book and just take a look at it. But in seven pages, I have an idea who the two main characters are, at least Mm -hmm. seemingly. I have an idea about their background, how they feel about each other. And I know the main character, uh, Nathaniel's background and why he does things. Like I get an idea that... He probably is going to stand up for the right. 
And they yeah. didn't have to spend a lot of time beating it, you know, beating me over the head with it. They just give me a quick flashback and, and tell me what's up. Yeah, he's going to do he's going to do the right thing because he's a stand up kind of guy. So Nathaniel gets to his uh, file drawers and pulls out a change of clothes because that's what you do when you have an office. And uh, they Joyce and Nathaniel head out for the evening. I'm going to say chances are he probably lives in his office. Yeah, he may. <laughs> he uh, may. During the Great Depression, that would make sense. I mean, it's a it doubles. I mean, it, in in most detective books, and this is what I mean. Like in all honesty, like as I was reading this, like I'm like I'm really liking how. Oh wow! I think there's a fire truck outside. <laughs> oh, fantastic! As long as that's not uh, your house, we're good. Yeah. No. Um. So as as I'm reading through this, uh, the. Uh, um, you know, the, the, the dialogue and the text, like you said, is really heavy, but it's rich and it, and it feels like you're, you're really reading one of those old detective novels, right? But you're getting all those images as well. So it's, it's so delicious. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So we get, uh, we, we, we get an advertisement for Power Lords, uh, for the ColecoVision Odyssey. Whoa. Uh, and I just can't tell you how much is wrong with all of that because Power Lords sucked and Coleco you didn't like the comic book, the action figures, or the video game. Uh, did you? Well, I didn't have an Odyssey, so I don't know if the video game was good or bad. Um, and I don't, I don't recall Power Lords action figures or the comic books. So yeah, there's a reason you don't. Okay, so we'll get to the to the next piece here and. We get the Joyce and Nathaniel meet up with a, a shoeshine guy who used to be a regular wolf of Wall Street. Hey, that's what he says. <laughs> and it wasn't just a movie from a few years ago set in the 80s. It was a phrase from the 80s used in a book about the 30s, about the 30s <laughs> and about the 80s. Yeah. So and, and they're chatting, but they're kind of again, they're setting up the time, right? He's become yeah. a shoeshine person because he could make money. And then we get our thugs too are still following our main characters around in the car. Yeah. So they're, they're loading their gun. Very nefarious there in the background. Smoking cigars. And yeah, we get keep moving on. And then uh, we get this guy jumps out of the car. Mm-hmm. and starts chasing him and he is not very good at chasing he no. runs into a guy with a dog yep. knocks him over and the dog's sitting there looking at him and then he runs into a woman with her groceries and she oh, calls man. him an oof not an oaf so a little editorial there and then we get this guy and he yells joyce joyce giuliano is it you it's you uh, must be four or five years and Joyce says Arthur Arthur Squire and we find out that Arthur Squire publishes pulp comic books oh hey now if you'll go back to you ready for this we're gonna go back okay. ways yeah. to funny book forensics episodes 250 and 251 beetle mania yeah. and squashed like a beetle you will recall that we discussed the blue beetle and yes. we discussed Fox feature syndicate comics with co-founder Victor Fox Mr. Victor uh-huh. S. Fox the king of comics, right? Not yes. Jack Kirby. Yes. And this yes. guy reminds me a lot of Victor Fox. Oh, hey. The person that used to rip off the other comics and make their sort of pseudo superheroes and, and get stuff out there. Yes. So we have our does, own Victor Fox. Yeah, because he even says that he, rip, he rips off uh, the shadow and Doc Savage. <laughs> exactly. And I thought that was a lot of fun. So, yeah. Another little Easter egg. And if you'll go back, uh, you can go back to our episodes 250 and 251 to find out. 250, you'll find out a little bit about, we reviewed, unfortunately, the untimely death. Of course, he appears to be alive again, but the untimely death of Ted Cord, the Blue Beetle. But we also go a lot of the history of the Blue Beetle in those two episodes. And you can find out a little bit about Fox Syndicate comics and where the Blue Beetle came from. So you can tie back there if you'd like. We have history. We do have history. We, we've done this a little bit. So now we get, uh, and of course I love history because I'm a big nerd. So nerd, we move in nerds, nerds, nerds. Okay. So <laughs> we get in here and uh, they head off to a cafe and bar and they sit down and, and chat some more. And we, we find a little bit more about the two and we find out that they're a 
quote unquote non-traditional couple for the thirties. They're talking about birth control. And I thought it was an interesting piece of the time. And if you go back to the time you had, of course you had Planned Parenthood, which originally, and again, I don't want to get flamed on Twitter, but Planned Parenthood, if you go way back, uh, eugenics was part of their original history. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) And so you had one group that maybe wanted to use birth control to limit the uh, offspring of poor people. And then you had another group uh, on the, uh, you had another group that thought that birth control was led to adultery and sin and your Billy Sundays of the world and, and folks like that. So you had very in different groups of folks uh, advocating on different sides. And I thought that that was interesting that this was brought up. And, and again, not that I'm, talking about our own show today but if you go back to episode 260 heavens to murgatroyd (laughs) we covered exit stage left and we did get into some of the issues that were a little bit that were during this time period as well that impacted this and as you'll see things moving forward issues like this influence the red scare as we start to get the right left divide on some of these issues and we get into extreme beliefs about what sexuality is. And we explored that in exit stage left when we cover, you know, in heavens to Murgatroyd episode 260, where we covered that with exit stage left. So Mm -hmm. we're looking at that book. And so I like to see these tie-ins here and it it's again, illustrates the hard work uh, McGregor went into when he did a lot of the research on this period and really set up the period. I also yeah. like the the fact that they establish Joyce and Nathaniel as a non-traditional couple of the time mm-hmm. and that they're acknowledging that. And then we get creepy guy looking at both of them. Oh, creepy guy. And <clears throat> we kind of move through and we get a little bit more chatter catching these folks up, defining the characters. And then Nathaniel gets up and creepy guy is very smart because he's reading his menu upside down. Oh, Yeah. And Nathaniel notices this. <laughs> yeah, I'm nonchalant. And he keeps holding it upside down, too. He doesn't even try to make an adjustment, which is fantastic. And we get Nathaniel moving over to talk to him. And this starts a brawl uh, that takes over a couple pages. Yeah, and it's pretty, we get a lot of commentary. It's pretty rough. Yeah, they get thrown through a window. And in the middle of that, we get an advertisement for mus- Columbia Muscle Frame Racer Bikes. Oh man, that looks like the bike that um that they use in in the movie Rad on Hell Track, and that is awesome. And then we get an advertisement for Sergeant Rock uh, vehicles and weapons from Remco, yeah. Yeah. which and also he's got made a Warlord toys. Yeah. He's got an amphibious armored troop carrier, which is very similar to the ducks that we see or we used to see in Seattle. We used to see, yeah, because they <laughs> had a see. sinking problem. Yeah. Well, no, they crashed into a bus and they had a sinking problem yeah so there was anyway it was a bad ending yeah so yes now we get back into this and the restauranteers wondering who's going to fix their window uh the guy sprints back into the car presumably with his friend cadaver and Mm -hmm. we keep going on in the story it's a it's a nice night for a walk and a train ride (laughs) so they head out and joyce and uh, Joyce and Nathaniel continue their night. They introduced, he gets introduced to an officer or a detective that used to work with him on the force. And the detective tells Joyce to pick her company better. Oh yeah. So nice little touch there. They, and they head home. So they've got to take the train out of the city, which I also think is a nice touch to illustrate that if they're heading to her place, she doesn't have enough money just to live right in the middle of the city where she works. Mm-hmm. So they head out and they end up and we find out Joyce has two kids and Nathaniel is sitting there talking to her daughter about Dick Tracy, which I thought was another nice touch. Yeah, she's listening to Dick Tracy on the radio as they did back then. Yeah, she does have a nice radio. So, yes, yeah. she must have saved up for the kids, which I think is super cool. Kind of illustrating what the area is. And then mm-hmm. we keep flipping through and we get an advertisement for the world's greatest comic book and science Whoa. film conventions with a clear Joker drawn had to be drawn by Neil Adams, right? Must've been. It looks Neil Adams, maybe Garcia Lopez could be. Well, we will continue to speculate. It's a good Joker. Actually, it might be Garcia Lopez now that I look at it, but I don't want to get too distracted and we'll move on. And we find out that 
yep, adult moment. Nathaniel and Joyce are in a relationship and they sleep together because they're, they're grown up lovers. humans. That's why they're talking about birth control. <laughs> yeah. Well, there we go. See, and that's the only time you talk about birth control because it leads to adultery, even though neither of them are committing adultery because they're not married or anything, but we're good. Yeah. So we move back in and Nathaniel shows up at his office. He heads back because I think that is where he lives. Uh-huh. <laughs> and there are goons are waiting. We've got cadaver oh, and the big guy. Oh, just sitting there on his stuff, just like goons do. And there they take him out to a car and they drive him to the Empire State Building and oh. they take him to the top of the Empire State Building and they throw him off. And, and, and that's the end of the issue. No, no, yeah, no. He's going to die. They bring him to the top. Yeah. And then they throw him off like his hat's falling down. I'm looking at it. Did it? And he even says he thinks. Oh, King my God. Kong died a bloodless death. I didn't think I would. Didn't think. Oh, wow. Okay. okay I didn't. I didn't realize that that was him falling off the building. I thought he was just falling down. Oh, no, no. God. He's falling off the building. But thank oh, goodness. Crap. He says, I didn't think I would. So that implies to me he's probably going to be alive next issue. But I don't know. He could be dying. Oh, man. <clears throat> I didn't. I didn't realize. Like, okay, now I see it now. Oh, man. I am dense. Listener, I'm dense. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. I'm a dumb. Uh, I will no, say though, like, and, he he puts up a good fight though. I thought he threw the other guy off the roof, but I realized that that was him. Now, <laughs> yeah, he's got off that big roof. monster guy throwing him around. So, well, yeah. we do get, and then we get the text piece at the end by Don McGregor. So, where the letter pages would go, we get a two-page little narrative, and we're going to get yeah. two more pages of this in issue two, and it's setting up why he did the story and how he got it in here and what it's related to and mentions working on a uh with a character called alexander risk in the past he's who kind of worked with private detectives but he so he'd done a lot of research mentions how he'd worked with gene colon before on kill raven um in a 30s piece for a hodiah twist story so we've got a few pieces in that they'd worked on a, a book at eclipse called ragamuffins so mm -hmm. they and he mentions why he told, chose Gene Colan in the book Ragamuffins. He was looking for an artist who would draw kids, but make them look. Uh, it, but it was a book for adults. He wanted the kids to look not like DC Comics super baby, but he wanted them to look like real children and real yeah. settings in the background. So a nice little piece about how they got together. And then it's a nice dialogue about him and Dick Giordano talking about the book and, and him pitching it. So if you have <laughs> pitched a comic before, I... And since you have, I recommend yeah. reading through this because I think it's neat. And it he's he's self-reflexive in the sense that he shows how little confidence he had in, in pitching the book. It uh, from from my perspective, reading this, it is like everything that you go into that meeting thinking like they're not going to they're not going to be interested. And you're second guessing and doubting yourself every step of the way. And and to hear them continually say yes you're like no you're you there's another ask there's something else and and that whole entire conversation that he outlines is like there was there wasn't that it was just like go go do it go go work it up it's like Bring when you're ready thing. to argue with it's like when you're regularly ready to argue with somebody but they don't argue with you like dick Giordano yeah. just kept saying yes we want to do this but he was ready to pitch it but he yeah. didn't know when to shut up. <laughs> yeah. He's like, wait a minute, I still got to pitch this. And Giordano's I, like, no, we're good. Just just make it. Just come up with yeah. it. Just put it together. <laughs> and I will tell you from from the, the from the other side of that that table, it is like it's such a weird feeling to have somebody say that to you. Like, go do it. Because you're the the disbelief is there. And, and it sounds you, like Gene Colan had built up enough credibility to help pitch pre-pitch this. I'm sure it was a little bit of a pre-pitch. So, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it. he said, "Oh, I, I got Gene Colan that I want to work with," and it was like, "Okay, yeah, do it." <laughs> so I do highly recommend reading these two text pieces in uh, the back. I think they give you good insight on why the story was created, but also good insight on pitching, what you say to people, how those interactions might be. And you get a good reflection, a snapshot of the creator at the time, which I always love oh. seeing these little pieces. Obviously, they're biased to the creator and they're written to be entertaining. But 
you, you get a, some good insight on what the creator was thinking and some backstory on the book. And yeah. that's the end. I mean, then we get an advertisement for Return of the Jedi, the video game by Ooh. Parker Brothers for the Atari 2600. And we get another advertisement for now for the Power Lords action figures. Ugh, these did don't you even know look good. That, yeah, they don't look good. But did you know that Adam could change it to something else? No, I didn't. Yeah, if it just twisted the characters. And so maybe in the future, when they did this again, Adam would just be one character and He-Man would be another character and it wouldn't spin around. Oh, okay. So it could happen. I'm not saying the two are related in any way. No, they they look kind of because I don't <laughs> I don't want to get sued. Well, anyway, so yeah, fun book, right? Yeah, no, super more fun book. Yeah, no, I want to read. I want to read the rest of these because it was super good and not too bad for me. Just opening the who's who omnibus and landing on a page. Yeah, no, this was a pleasant surprise. And I I honestly, like I said, when I when I opened it up and, and saw it, I couldn't not start reading it when I when I did at one o'clock in the morning. So Wow. Well I know <laughs> we will we will read the rest and find out if he dies falling off the top of the building. Oh god, I hope not. But I mean, I'm imagining there's 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 more books, so he something, something. Maybe oh, well, King we, Kong saves him. King Kong saves him. That I think that would be against the whole spirit of the book. Oh, he turns into the spirit. Uh, I don't think he's going to become a superhero. Oh, okay. Damn it. <laughs> so yeah, it's not a superhero book. So that's right. We'll find out what happens to Nathaniel and Joyce in the next episode of Funny Book Forensics. And until then, hey, I wish you well, Greg. Any last thoughts? Promos. <sighs> No, I mean, like, just go go read good comics and uh, check out new comics because you'll never know what you're going to find when you open up something you've never checked out before like we did. And I will link you to the Nathaniel Dusk issues in the show notes. Sweet. All right. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of Funny Book Forensics. Funny Book Forensics.